Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. If you don't have your Bible, or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one near you. Um, if, you wanna, if you have to look that up in the index to find where we are, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Just remember that the big number is the chapter, and the small number is the verse. And so we are in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. So when you find your place in the Bible, and trust me, if you don't have a Bible, you'll want to use one of the ones in front of you because we're going to spend all of our time there. And so you'll be bored if you don't have it. Um, but but uh, once you're there, uh, go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes with me, and, and we'll pray. Father, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to come together to hear your word. Father, to, to let it wash over us and, and to soak our hearts and our minds in, in the words of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and open up our lives and, and, and open up our minds to your truth. Father, help us to meditate on your words. Help us to, to, to soak in them so that it really, truly makes a difference in our lives. Father, help us to understand. Help us to grasp the reality that you have called us to grace. That you have, have made us your people through grace. That you have given us this, this church and, and this, this body of, of people who will love each other and encourage one another and, and spend time in the word together and pray together. And it's all a grace. It's all a gift from you that we don't deserve. Father, I pray that just as we receive grace, we will be quick to give it. Father, I pray that as we read through this text today. We will, we will see this overarching theme that, that you are more concerned about the idea of grace spreading throughout the Hatch Valley, throughout New Mexico, and around the world than you are about our reputations. Father, help us to be ones that, that love you that love the church and that love sinners enough to take the gospel to them and bring them to hear the good news of Jesus. Father, we love you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is this fellow named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a fun name to say. He was a pastor in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in a, in a difficult position because as the Nazis rose up, the, the Lutheran church in Germany was controlled by the government. And so as, as Hitler began his ascent and as, his, as the Nazi people gained more and more positions of power in the government, uh, <coughs> eventually um, the Nazi ideas were being given to the Lutheran church in Germany to be taught, to be preached on Sunday mornings and to be taught in the Sunday schools. 
And Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and a group of other pastors said, this is not right. This is not, this is going to pull us away from the gospel. And not only is it going to pull us away from the gospel, but some of these ideas are harmful to those who live among us in Germany. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer and some of the other pastors, they withdrew from the, the Lutheran church in Germany. They started their own church. They called it the Confessing Church. And they, they actively began to try to overthrow the government, to try to overthrow Adolf Hitler. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed by the government because he was a part of a group that tried to assassinate Hitler. It's, it's a fascinating story. You should, you should do some research on him. But, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he had some, some great teaching that, that's, that's impacted the church global for good, right? We're talking about, here we are in 21st century America, talking about a 20th century German pastor. And, and one of his ideas was the church had gotten into this, this issue with teaching people that Christianity was mostly about avoiding sins. That they would preach the gospel and you would come to faith in Jesus and then the church would be about you have to do everything you can to avoid being sinful. And Bonhoeffer said, that's, that's not the point of following Jesus. Following Jesus is not about avoiding sin, though we should, right? We should fight against sin. But following Jesus is about going into the world to make disciples, to tell them about the radical grace that is found in Jesus that Jesus came to live the perfectly obedient life that you and I could not live, to die the, the atoning, sin-paying sacrifice of death on the cross for us, and then three days later comes back to life to defeat death and hell. And it's our job as followers of Jesus to go into the highways and the hedges to tell people about Jesus. And sometimes we fail to tell people about Jesus because we're afraid if we're around them, we won't be able to avoid sin and we get misdirected and we lose the reason we're here. Right? We've talked over the last couple of weeks about how Jesus is calling us to be missionaries and, and we know that because after we're saved, we're still here, right? We're not automatically beamed up into heaven once we trust in Christ and we're here to tell others about Jesus. And so today, we're going to continue walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to continue looking at three things that Jesus tells us. Um, well, three things that, that Jesus is going to teach on. We're going to talk about oaths. We're going to talk about retaliation. And we're going to talk about what it means to love our enemy. But this, this teaching is not, again, we, we don't want to turn these into rules that we have to follow. What Jesus is giving us is a, a manual for how to live as missionaries. And so this, this, there's going to be this undercurring idea that's going to keep popping up as we walk through these, these three paragraphs today. And so I want to go ahead and give it to you, and I'm going to remind you throughout the sermon, because this is, this is where Jesus wants to take us, and this is what he wants to remind us of. And so here's that idea. If you're following Jesus, you must be concerned about more than your reputation. If you're 
following Jesus, you must be concerned about more than your reputation. Christianity is not about avoiding sins. It's about taking the good news of Jesus to sinners like us, right? So with that idea in mind, if we're going to follow Jesus, we must be concerned about more than our reputation. Let's jump into Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Here's what Jesus tells us. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So this command to not swear falsely, it comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Remember last week when Jesus said, you've heard it said, he was pulling from the Ten Commandments, right? That you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. So here Jesus is is pulling from the Old Testament law, but he's pulling from somewhere differently than Exodus chapter 20. So Leviticus 19 is is a part of the, the legal code for the nation of Israel, especially as it pertains to their religion. Right? Leviticus is the Latin form of Levite, and if you remember from your Old Testament history, Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons is Levi. From Levi come Moses and Aaron, the two men who lead Israel out during the Exodus, and God sets apart the Levites to serve as the priests of Israel. They are the one that will stand before God and offer the sacrifices and go into the Holy of Holies during the Day of Atonement. And so the book of Leviticus is the religious laws of Israel. And so this idea of swearing, Jesus, now remember, when we're talking about swearing here, we're not using the, the term for cussing. This is not saying bad words. This swearing here is a swearing of oaths, of, of saying something like, I swear to God this is true. All right? And so Jesus is telling us that we are to take no oath at all. We are not to swear by God. We are not to swear by any temple or any sanctuary. We're not to swear by any city, right? He says Jerusalem. I don't know if we would swear by Jerusalem because we don't look at Jerusalem the same way that a Jewish person does. Um, But he says, don't even swear by the hairs of your head. And I love the way that Jesus teaches this. He says, because you have no control over whether your hair is black or white. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, yes, I can. I can, I can go down to the, the pharmacy and buy something, right? But that's not you changing your hair color. That's you using chemicals to change your hair color. You cannot look at one of your hairs and say, be black or be white. You have so little control of your life. Think about how much we take for granted. We get into these little, or well, for some of us, they're they're bigger, but we we get into these vehicles that, that hurl us at 70 miles per hour. 
And oftentimes, there's nothing in between us and the traffic that's coming the other way. And we feel like we have control. But one slip of the hand, one sneeze, one, oh no, I have to return this text, and our lives change drastically. Jesus is trying to get us to understand that you shouldn't swear by God or by your own life or by the life of your children or your spouse or, or anyone else because you can't control the outcome. You are not God. You cannot make true what you swear is true or will be true. Jesus wants you to simply say yes or no. Jesus wants us to live with integrity so that our word stands. Friends, these verses, they make my heart hurt because I'm so bad about this. Not of swearing, I, I gave that up a long time ago. But of saying, yeah, I'll, I'll get this to you by Tuesday. And then life gets in the way, and I don't get it to them until Wednesday. In fact, I mean, I did this to Reba this very week. I told her I'd get her something on Monday, and I didn't get it to her until Friday. Right? And so this, this reminds us, one, of how flippant we are with our words. And we talked about this last week, right? And so if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to, to download the sermon uh, so you can listen to it. But, but all too often, we use our words like they contain so little meaning. But secondly, we think we have more control over our lives than we do. So instead of me telling Reba on Monday, hey, I'll get it to you later today, I should have said, I'll get it to you as soon as I can, right? Because things got in the way, and I kept pushing it back and pushing it back. Friends, the reason that Jesus wants us to pay attention to what we say and pay attention to what we promise is because words do matter. What is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe to the Jew first and then to the Greek? It's the gospel. And what does gospel mean? It means good news. And what is good news? It is words. The power of God unto salvation for those that believe are words. God created the universe by speaking it into existence. John, when he describes the coming of Jesus in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in verse 17, he says, and the Word became flesh. Friends, words matter to our God. He cares deeply how we use our words, and the reason he cares so much about it is because our words should mean something to believers and unbelievers. When we tell each other, I'm praying for you, I will walk through this with you. When we encourage one another with the cross and the resurrection, those should carry with them weight. Because God uses our words. 
and for unbelievers. We want them to hear our yes as a yes, and we want them to hear our no as a no, because when we have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus, we want our words to matter. If we are untrustworthy to unbelievers, why would the gospel matter to them if it comes from us? They will simply look at those words as they look at all of our other words. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our words matter because God reveals himself through words. God uses our words to impact other people. So let us take seriously what Jesus is calling us to. Let us take seriously our yes being a yes and our no being a no. And this has nothing to do with our reputation. We should live with integrity. We should keep our word, but not so that people will think that we're good and honest and hardworking people. We should keep our word and live with integrity so that we can share the gospel and those words can carry as much power as our yes and our no. So here's the first reminder from Jesus that if we're following him, we must be concerned about more than our reputation. Our words matter because our words should have the gospel shining through them. Verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus begins this paragraph reminding us of the teaching from Exodus chapter 24 and Leviticus chapter 21. This idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, um, it's, it's not about individual vengeance. It is about community justice. And this is something that, that I think when, when people read the words of Jesus, uh, some, some of our friends and, and some of our fellow believers will take this as, this is an argument against capital punishment. This is an argument against uh, countries being militarized. I think that's overstepping the context of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not saying whether it's right or wrong for the state of New Mexico to have the death penalty. Jesus is not speaking here on whether it's right or wrong that the United States should have an army and a navy and an air force to protect its people and to help police the world. Those questions are answered in different parts of Scripture. And in fact, I would say that Romans 13, where Paul says that government is a ministry of the Lord's and that the, the, the king or the governor does not carry the sword in vain, I think that would remind us that there is good in capital punishment and there is good in countries defending themselves. There is good in having police officers and, and a military force. Now, those police officers and those governors and those kings and those armies, they can do bad things, right? Sinful people make up those institutions, but God created government for the good of people. 
Now what Jesus is talking about here is in the idea of personal vengeance. What I was just talking to our children about. My children think if I get punched, I need to punch back. If someone says something mean, I need to say something mean back. They have not been taught that by their parents. They may have seen it from us, right? But they haven't been taught that. Friends, that's, that's a heart issue. And it's not just with our children, it's with us too. This, this idea of if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Think, think for a moment, right? What, what is the dominant hand of the average human? It's the right hand, right? I'm right-handed, so if I were to come up to you and strike you in the face with my right hand, and it was a punch, where would I hit you? It wouldn't be the right cheek. It would be the left cheek. Now, my son, who's a southpaw, right, like when, when he and I shadow box together, like I have to protect my right cheek. Why? Because he's left-handed, so he's coming in with the, with the hook, with the left-handed hook. Um, but that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. For a right-handed person to strike your right cheek, they're going to have to go like this. It's going to have to be backhanded. And for the Jewish people, the ways that you would insult someone is you would spit in their direction, right? That's like a, that's like a, that's all cultures, right? Um, if you spit at someone, it means I, I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. Um, you would take their shoe from them, right, which is really, it almost seems a little juvenile, right, like that's what my kids do to each other, um, but, but the idea there would be, you know, you take the shoe off, and it, 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 it represents that, that they're, they're, uh, they're backwards, and, and, and they're not, they're not wise, but the, the best way to offend someone and to show them up would be to give them a backhanded slap. That's how you cut someone down, was to, to backhand slap them. And so Jesus here is not talking about, and we need to be very careful here, he's not talking about not defending yourself or someone that you love if you are in, um, if you're in danger, okay? If someone is attacking children, by all means, step in and stop them. If someone walks into this sanctuary with a gun, by all means, attack them and stop them. What Jesus is talking about here is if someone wants to embarrass you, if someone wants to try to make you look like a fool, let them. How hard is that teaching? In fact, he says, don't just let them slap your right cheek. Turn the other cheek to them. Allow them to slap you again. And then he says, I mean, he, he, he continues with this idea. So if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is just the, the way that, that, that um, our our first century friends would say, if they're going to sue you for your coat, give them your shirt also. And then he goes from there and he says, 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, there was a law in all of Rome, and remember, at this time, Israel is under Roman rule. There was a law in Rome that if a Roman soldier asked a citizen or a non-citizen in, Rome, in the Roman territories to carry his equipment, they were required by law to carry that equipment for one mile. So imagine you're in the middle of a work day, you have much on your plate, and a Roman soldier comes up to you and says, hey, you need to carry this for a mile. So not only is it going to be heavy, dirty work, but it's going to take you out of your plans for the day, right? Because an average person, I mean, quickly walks a mile 15 minutes. So you're going to go a mile out of your way, then turn around and come back. So that's a half hour of your day wasted. And the Roman soldiers, they took great joy in this, right? I mean, they loved to pick on people and force them to serve them. They loved to lord their position as a Roman soldier over people that were below them. But Jesus says, if they ask you to go one mile, go two and then, Jesus says, and if anyone, or I'm sorry, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Friends, these are, these are different ways to say the same thing. Jesus is telling us to be gracious and generous. He's telling us to give grace to people that don't deserve it. When someone embarrasses you, you're called not to embarrass them back, but to return evil with good. Think back to what we read from Paul in Romans 12. Paul says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. And that sounds like a really weird thing to say. Right? Like, I mean, who here wants burning coals heaped on their head? Not one hand was raised, right? And it's not because you aren't paying attention. It's because you know that would not, it wouldn't feel good. It wouldn't be comfortable. It would not be seen as a good thing. Here's, here's that idea that Paul is trying to point us to. Right? So, with gold, right? You, you, you get, uh, let's say you're, you're, you're digging somewhere in, in, the, in the hills of New Mexico. You, you come up upon some gold. Um, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to stick it in fire to burn out the dross and the impurities, right? To get the pure gold separate because that's, that's what's worth something, right? Is the pure gold. And so the first idea behind these hot coals is for Paul to say, listen, if there's an unbeliever who does you harm and you return that with good, you don't return evil for evil, but you give good for the evil that they've given you, then hopefully that opens up an avenue for you to share the gospel with them. They come to belief and, and they repent of those sins and they even seek to re repay you for the harm that they've done to you. They seek restitution. Or if they're a believer, then obviously this is just some sort of, of, of 
problem within them that if you return the evil with good, that will hopefully lead them to repentance and lead them to restitution. Or if they aren't a believer and they don't become a believer, then you're just heaping upon them more of God's judgment. That's why Paul says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Our job as Christians is not to seek personal vengeance. As much as, me, as, as, much as we may want to, as much as our hearts may desire it, God is calling us to answer evil with grace. He is calling us to answer those that want to do us harm with goodness. And he's doing it with in mind. Don't forget the context. Right? We started the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are all of these types of people. And then we move to Jesus calling us to do what? To be cities on a hill and to be salt. To be salt and light for the world. To take the good news of Jesus to every nook and cranny for us in the Hatch Valley. And if we're so busy trying to seek vengeance against all those people that have done us harm, it's going to be really hard to get the job of being salt and light done. And in fact, in a small town, and you know this, right? You know this. If you're so busy seeking to get vengeance, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't going to want to hear what you have to say about Jesus. So the way we respond to evil is with grace and goodness. Again, not talking about like if someone wants to physically harm you or someone else, you protect, right? And that's one of the things we've, we've taught our girls and we will teach our son when he's old enough to understand this isn't a, an excuse to pile drive whoever he wants. Um, but, you know, if you see someone being bullied, you stand up for them. You, you don't let someone else bully, whether they're your friend or not. You, you stand up for people that are, are, are being put in physical danger, even if it means you have to return with, with something physical, right? But when it comes to people wanting to embarrass us and put us down and mock us, and listen, friends, as the United States moves more and more towards secularism and atheism, these things are going to come. You're going to be mocked for your beliefs. And you're going to want to respond in kind. Look, perfect illustration. At one of our Friday nights after, after a football game, there's a young man spouting off about how dumb Christianity was. And instead of responding with grace and truth, I tried to make him look as, as stupid as I could. And I'm embarrassed by that. Because I could have told him about Jesus in a way that still honored him. But instead of doing that, since he called me stupid, I wanted to make him look stupid. So I did it in a way that, that I think kind of embarrassed him. It's not how Jesus calls us to respond. You can stand up for the gospel and do it in a gracious way. 
You can present the truth of Christ without belittling someone. Because again, if you're following Jesus, you must be about more than your reputation. Accepting harm from someone and giving them good is meant to show them the graciousness of God. Not protect whatever reputation we have as, as smart or, or hardworking or, or, or whatever else, whatever other kind of reputation we want to uphold. So we move to the final portion. And if you thought this section was hard, wait until we go through verses 43 through 48. <clears throat> Jesus says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This call to love your enemy and hate your neighbor, I'm sorry, This call to love your neighbor and hate your enemy does not come from anywhere in Scripture. Now, there is a call in Leviticus 19. You know, we, we've heard Leviticus 19 a couple times already today. There is a call in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor. And there seems to be some Jewish tradition built off of that that says you should love your neighbor, but it's okay if you hate your enemy. And so Jesus is trying to send a corrective here. And he's saying, listen, you're not allowed to hate your, your enemy. That is, that is not available to one who follows Jesus. And he uses the perfect illustration of this. He takes us to God, and he reminds us that, that our prayers for our enemies should be like God with the weather. For he makes his sun to shine on the just and unjust alike. And he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Boy, if this passage shouldn't touch us, right? How often have we seen rain falling on somebody else's land and thought, come on, they don't deserve that, but I do. This is a reminder that, that God has two types of grace. He has a general grace that is gifts to everyone. The sun shining, the rain falling, the good seasons of crops, the, 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 the good years where the animals are healthy, the, the good year where the, the classroom, the, there's only a few knuckleheads instead of a whole classroom of knuckleheads, right? God gives good gifts to every human on the face of the earth. There are good things that come up in every life that has ever lived. 
But there is a specific grace. And that specific grace is the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. That, that, that moving of the Holy Spirit in hearts and minds to confront us with our sinfulness and show us the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In fact, this is the grace that Jesus wants to sort of push us to and point us to as he tells us that we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Friends, that is impossible. You cannot do that on your own. In fact, Benjamin Franklin summed this up really well when he said, if I ever conquered pride, I would be proud that I did. If you think it's possible to live a perfect life, keep a journal of your day for about a week and every hour, just write down every bad thought, every bad word, every bad action and you'll fill up the journal. And on top of that, there will be things that you miss, sins that you didn't think were sins. This call from Jesus to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is impossible. It cannot be done. And so this reminds us of what we've been reminding ourselves throughout these last few weeks as we've come to the Sermon on the Mount. That the commands of Jesus, just like the commands of the rest of the Bible, are meant to serve as a curb to say that if you go over this curb, you are guilty before God and He has every right to condemn you to hell for eternity. But these commands also serve as a mirror to place in front of us to say, I have so much sin. I cannot follow these laws. It's impossible for me that they drive us to the cross of Christ. They drive us to believe in Jesus, that his life, death, and resurrection were enough to save us. And once we've turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus, now they become a guide, saying this is how you live. This is how you follow Jesus. So curb, mirror, guide. We love our neighbor and we love our enemy. We pray for our enemies because if we're following Jesus, we must be concerned about more than our reputation. So let me give you very quickly three ways to apply what Jesus is teaching here. The first one is this. You've heard it a hundred times. I pray that you will hear it a thousand more. Grace getters are grace givers. Commit to living this out. Commit to showing grace to people that harm you. Commit to showing grace to people that are out to get you. And even even smaller than that, commit to showing grace to the people that are around you 
that have the little hurts and the little slights. Remember what Peter told us in his first letter, that love covers a multitude of sins. When your spouse sins against you, show grace. When your child sins against you, show grace. When your parents or grandparents sin against you, show grace. It doesn't mean you don't say, hey, that hurt, or hey, this isn't right. But there's a way to do it graciously that lifts up Jesus and and serves as an illustration of the gospel. So grace-getters are grace-givers. The second thing in our home, patiently teach the concept of grace. Patiently teach the concept of grace. Talk about what it means, right? You're smart people. You You can see how this plays out. Talk about what it means to give people what they don't deserve. If you have little ones like we do, Every punch and every tattle and every name call is a moment to teach grace. If you have big ones, talk about the, 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 the large, grand story of grace and how that impacts our lives and our families. I added the word patiently because teaching grace is hard. It's a whole lot easier for me to smack the rear end of the offender and say, don't do it again, than to sit down and say, I don't love you more when you do good. I don't love you less when you do bad. I love you because you're my child. And that is the grace that God gives you. So any of this discipline, whether it's a spanking or a grounding or a losing an iPod or whatever it is, It's done because I love you and I want the best for you. Can I pray for you? And normally when I do that with with my girls, they roll their eyes and say, yeah, you can pray. My sons actually said, no, I don't want to pray right now. (laughs) It's because he hasn't figured out, you know, you need to act sort of sanctimonious when dad's disciplining you. Um, You can pray for, well, you can pray for all my kids, but anyways. Um, but we need to patiently teach grace in our homes. And this doesn't have to do just with the parent, child, grandparent, grandchild relationship. This has to do with the marital relationship too. We can teach grace to each other without being sanctimonious and self-righteous. We can teach grace to each other without preaching sermons at one another. And look, Megan can tell you, I'm pretty bad about sometimes wanting to preach sermons to her but we need to figure out how to, to encourage and, and, and prod one another along to be gracious. Final idea. In the community, live so that others call you gracious. Live so that others call you gracious. I think this is the hardest one, right? Because most unbelievers don't even have a concept of grace. Right? Most people that are separated from Christ, they think Christianity is about the rules, so they would come in here today thinking, okay, we're going to talk about not swearing oaths, we're going to talk about um, letting people hit you, and we're going to talk about having to pray for people you don't like. And yes, we talked about all those things, but that's not the main push of the story. The main push of the story is, in Jesus, 
sinners get what they don't deserve. They, they find salvation and forgiveness and adoption into God's family. And because of that, believers are to respond likewise with grace, giving people what they don't deserve. And so, what Jesus is calling you to here, when you're going to show grace to unbelievers, most of them are going to miss it. They're not going to get why you're doing what you're doing. They're not going to see you be gracious and think, that must be because you follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus too. I would be willing to bet that most of the people you show grace to in your lifetime will not understand it and will not reciprocate it. But Jesus tells us again and again in his teaching, that's not just okay, that's good. Because everything you do is not for the audience of around here. I'm not supposed to preach and teach and disciple and pray and lead this church for you so that you can see it and say, wow, Andy, that's, you're such a, great, such a great preacher and pastor. I'm supposed to be doing this for an audience of one. I'm supposed to work hard in my study and pray hard in my life and lead you as hard as I can and love my wife and lead my children as hard as I can so that when I stand before my God, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so you're called to give grace, not with the number one goal of people saying, man, you're so gracious. I wish I could be as gracious as you. I want to come to church because I want to be gracious just like you. You're doing it to honor the God who is gracious to you. You're doing it so that when you stand before God, and you tell him the only reason you're entering heaven is because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You showed grace to people who didn't deserve it. Friends, when you show grace to people who will never understand it and never be thankful for it, you are acting like God. You are following in his footsteps. Be a child that wants to please the Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the message of, of your grace to us. And, and Father, I pray that we would be able to, to respond likewise with, with grace. Father, I pray that we would start in our homes teaching grace and showing grace. I pray that it would bleed over to this church, that we would be a gracious people to one another, encouraging each other, loving each other, and pointing each other to Jesus. Father, I pray that this grace would, would pour out of here into the streets and gravel roads of the Hatch Valley. Father, I pray that we would love our neighbors well, that we would show grace to those who want to hurt us intentionally and show grace to those who do hurt us unintentionally. Father, I pray that, that the redeeming love of Jesus would be the theme and the song that we live out for your glory and for the good of the Hatch Valley. And God, let us say one more thing. Let us, let us live not expecting a thank you in return for our graciousness, 
But God, we pray that you would use our showings of grace as a means to open up unbelievers to the life-changing story of Jesus Christ. Save our friends, our family, and our neighbors. Use the gospel story to open up their eyes to their sinfulness, to your holiness, and to your grace, mercy, and love found in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, friends, it's time for us to respond. If you're an unbeliever and, and you have heard the gospel and you want to respond to it, I want to invite you to come down and talk with me. I'd love to talk and pray with you. Uh, but stop, stop running from God. Turn from your sins and, and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Believers, maybe God's doing something in your heart or life. Uh, if you would like to talk and pray, I'd love to do that with you as well. But let's all now stand and respond with singing this morning. Thank you.